I'm standing before you this morning, having watched the pastor nick my sermon um, <laughs> earlier on. I like, to, I like to feel now that I've matured as a Christian and as a brother, so that instead of being fed up that he's nicked my sermon, um, I'm joyful that he has uh, preached my sermon for me, so it doesn't matter if I muck it up. Okay? And that, trust me, it all will come clear. This morning we're going to continue our series on Psalms. Uh, I'm amongst those who have a particular affection for Psalms. Um, Psalms are a collection of the songs for the redeemed. Which is to say their perspective and the place they see things from is based upon relationship with God. And as someone in relationship with God... I find I, I often, I very often, identify closely with the psalmist. In fact, Calvin called the psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. Now, psalms, as we uh, probably know, were originally associated with temple worship. Um, the directions for 30 or so of the psalms, in terms of when they should be used, uh, are, are lost. And we don't know any of the original tunes, uh, none of which I suspect would work for Fatfish. Um, but it is reasonable to say that because of the very personal and emotional outlook the Psalms have, that they've escaped the temple. Okay. And so to our psalm this morning, which is Psalm 22, we'll, we'll read it all the way through. My God, my God, why... Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. 
all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Um, I'm finding it quite hard to come up with any jokes uh, for this. So we're going to be serious for a minute. Uh, Commentators include Psalm 22 in a bunch of psalms. They call it messianic psalms. Psalms that look forward to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, The similarities between Psalm 22 and the accounts of the last hours of Jesus are by any measure incredibly striking. Though there are a thousand years between David writing this psalm and the crucifixion of Jesus, Psalm 22 begins with, The very cry of Jesus on the cross. And we read in verse 8, the very words of the chief priests and scribes who mocked while Jesus hung on the cross. We read in verse 16 that his hands and his feet were pierced. We read in verse 18, not only that his clothes were shared out, but the precise manner as to how the division was arrived at, which is to say, casting lots. And there is more. There is a lot more uh, than that to be got out of the psalm if you want to take a couple of hours to study it. A lot more, okay? But I don't want you to have to go home, turn your dinner off, and then come back for the rest of the sermon. This psalm describes a method of execution that was never adopted by the Jewish nation. 
was first adopted by the Persians 300 years after Psalm 22 was written and then taken up with more enthusiasm by the Roman Empire. Now, most who don't know Jesus, um, they base their view on a bunch of fallacies, quarter truths, misinformation and plain nonsense. And to be honest, it ticks me off. (laughs) (laughs) I've looked into this. I was not a Christian and now I am. They have not looked into this and they are not a Christian. Okay, who is honest now? Why do I feel defensive? Well, you know, frankly, I don't. It really annoys me that so many could be painfully lazy about checking out the claims of Jesus Christ and could be so careless about an issue that has profound and eternal consequences. Psalm 22 gives a breathtaking insight into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ centuries before his birth. Now, if, you, if you're not a Christian, well, the choice is clear. Have the intellectual honesty to check it out. And I would suggest that the Exploring Christianity series is the place to do it. Or in your ignorance, join in with those that mocked at the foot of the cross. That is the choice. Verse 1 poses the question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines forsaken as left entirely. My God, my God, why have you left me entirely? Uh, I was watching a a TV program uh, quite some time ago now about uh, twins. Uh, I'm married to a twin, as you perhaps know. There are two Belindas out there. Uh, One is called Jane. Um, And this particular part of the program covered the story of uh, conjoined twins, two little girls who were born conjoined. And uh, sometime before their second birthday, uh, medical necessity required that an operation take place to separate them. And sadly and unexpectedly, uh, one of the little girls died. And for years afterwards, when the living sister awoke in the morning from a nap, she immediately became very distressed And they thought initially, well, you you know, the poor thing's had an operation. There's pain. She has to heal. But you see, in her short life to that point, the first thing she saw when she awoke had always been her sister. Her sister had been ever-present, literally a part of her. And she was not there. And at the point she discovered her sister had left her entirely. She was inconsolable. Now, the the story affected me greatly when I heard it. Um, Apart from the the sadness of the, the family concerned, it gave to me just a hint, just a suggestion of how being forsaken by the Father 
was to Jesus the Son. For David in Psalm 22 and verse 1, his question was rooted in relationship and in how he felt. Matthew Henry puts it like this, to cry out, my God, why am I sick? Why am I poor? Savers of discontent and worldliness. But why hast thou forsaken me? Is the language of a heart binding up its happiness in God's favour. For Jesus, as recorded in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, however his question was rooted, it was rooted in it how it really was. In the fact of him being entirely alone. And I, I recommend Nigel's sermon, October the 3rd, if you want a full exposition of this. But to reiterate, Jesus was forsaken in place of mankind. As a result, we have not been forsaken, nor will we be forsaken. And in Hebrews 13.5, the followers of Jesus inherit and take ownership of a specific promise. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So for David, he knew God. And it was about how he felt. But for Jesus, who was part of God, it was about how it was. We don't know for sure when David wrote Psalm 22. Uh, As Phil uh, pointed out last week, the numbering system of Psalms in our Bible actually has nothing to do with the chronological order in which they were written. Um, The earliest one that was written we call Psalm 90. And uh, Psalm 22 is probably in the early mid-30s, chronologically speaking. The commentators are prepared to suggest any of the following. That it was written when David was alone and being harried incessantly at the hands of Saul in 1 Samuel 20 and 21. It could have been during Saul's persecution of David in the desert of Maon in 1 Samuel 23. It could have been during his flight from Absalom in 2 Samuel 15 and 17. But there is consensus on three points. One, that we don't know for certain. Two, that it was written during a time of crisis. I don't think you need too many degrees to see that. And three, that the crisis wasn't necessarily David's fault. He wasn't necessarily responsible for the mess he found himself in. And whilst this psalm is clearly messianic, it simultaneously has some lessons for us on what to do when things go badly wrong. Firstly, be honest. I love this quote. It's a guy called Dennis Bratcher. When I was a youngster, there was a man in our church whose position was that a Christian should respond to everything in life with a happy, praise the Lord. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you should praise the Lord and thank him that you weren't using a saw. (laughs) Uh, Somehow, even then in my immature mind, I knew that something was wrong with that thinking. He was asking me to pretend that my thumb didn't hurt when it did. To pretend it didn't hurt did not change that fact. I understood even then that this was a form of dishonesty. 
uh, I'm reminded of a scene in the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail where during a sword fight, an opponent has first his arm sliced off and then progressively all his limbs. And he keeps insisting that it is, quote, merely a flesh wound, unquote. Uh, if you see Steve King afterwards, he can probably recite it word for word for you. <clears throat> I think sometimes an unwillingness to accept that, that we're in pain that, uh, is, is driven by the illegitimate concern that we should not be feeling it. Okay. Uh, however, if we follow David's lead, acknowledge that it hurts and be honest with God... This opens up the path to dealing with it in a healthy way. Um, those of you who know me well, if you see me uh, Sunday morning and say, Hi Steve, how are you? You'll find I often use the phrase, battling on. Okay? Um, and some of you have twigged what I'm doing. Okay? I'm not going to say fine. Uh, why aren't I fine? Well, I'm, I'm still struggling with heart failure, amongst other things. And I don't want to lie to you. But nor do I want to burden you with all my, you know, medical complications, how many pills I take, da-di-da-di-da. Okay. So, if you say, how am I? I say, battling on. Good, how are you? And we just move on. But I haven't lied to you. I haven't said fine. Okay. And if you're interested, or if you know, you'll ask a few more questions. And if you're not, I still love you. Pass by. It's really, it's really not, a, not a problem. Okay. But for me personally, that is how... I've learned to be honest about the tough things that I face. Secondly, exercise faith. Uh, Nigel, we'd like you to leave the room now, please. Uh, he'll, he'll just finish his note. Okay. And we'd like you to go a long way down the corridor. Everybody wave to Nigel. He just said, he said, you're on a PA and I will listen. I can't shut the door. Here we go. Nigel? Nigel? Can you come back, Nigel? Nigel! <laughs> Nigel! He's left entirely, hasn't he? Yeah. Okay? In, in a nice way, he's forsaken us. Oh, and the door's locked. No, that was a view. You can come back now, Nigel! <laughs> Actually, he really has gone. <laughs> I knew I should have asked Callie. <laughs> so we have to all climb really loud. Okay, Nigel, after three. One, two, three. Nigel! <laughs> well, that stuffed my illustration, didn't it? Okay. I've no idea. I think he might have gone to the loo. Should we, should we carry on without him? Or should we... Thank you. That's fine. No, it's lovely to see you. Isn't it lovely to see him? Yeah, yeah. 
And don't let him pick anything up heavier than a Bible, by the way. Okay. In Psalm 22, David points up the difference between what he knows to be true and how he feels. David feels God is not there, and yet he prays. It's a complete breakdown of logic to call out to the one who he's accused in verse 1 already of having left entirely. God's very absence is central to his complaint, and yet it is to him he calls. God was personal to David. The first words in verse 1 are, my God. This isn't the cry of someone who, who, until a moment of crisis, had no relationship with God. It was a cry from the heart of someone with pre-existing knowledge and experience of him. This was a cry from someone who knew him. So in David's case, when he chose to believe that God really is there, when his circumstances suggested that he was not, this was not wishful thinking. This was faith. It's an act of faith for the Christian to pray to his Lord when he feels abandoned by him. Yes. And it's a lie that God would ever forsake one of his children. Yes. Okay, it's a lie. It's an absolute stone-cold lie. Thirdly, shift perspective. Now, I know I, I share this, this trait with others uh, here this morning, and I'm sure I share this trait with others I don't know why I share it with, but I'm a mutterer. Okay, if only I'm Okay, if I'm trying to do something and I'm, I am encountering difficulty or I'm making mistakes, I mutter under my breath. Something like... Does he? I tend to mutter it. Something like... So we've stopped picking on Nigel now. <laughs> Something like, you know, come on, Steve, you've done this, but you know how to do it. Look, wake up, get with the... Pro I, I sort of mutter that sort of thing under my, uh, under my breath. And David, in verse 3 to 5 and 9 to 11, he reminds himself of what God has already done. He and God have history together, during which God has proved unfailingly trustworthy. Verse 10 says, from birth I was cast on you, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. I call this looking in the rearview mirror. I, I nicked the phrase from a sermon years ago. I thought it was so good. When I look back at my not uneventful life, I can see clearly the hand of God and the reality that he has always been trustworthy. So my experience, my personal experience of him, is that he is no less trustworthy in my distress yeah. than he is when all is well. Yeah. And that is what David is saying. So in verse 22, he starts to migrate his pain to a place of trust. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you, he writes. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. 
but has listened to his cry for help. Not only has he migrated himself to a place of trust, he's actually saying to everyone else, hey, come with me to this place of trust. Okay? Everyone in the assembly, come on! You know. Now, in practical terms, there's no indication that anything had changed. Uh, In other words, whatever the crisis was, it had not yet abated. Okay? Nothing had changed. But David takes the decision to declare the name of God, to praise him, to honour him, and to revere him, to place God above his feelings and to do it without delay. Okay? Uh, I don't know how long it took to write the psalm. Commentators tend to suggest that these were written as a piece. They weren't written over a period of months or what have you. Um, So he actually went in an hour or whatever it took from his place of pain to deciding to trust God. The pain was still there, but he went through it. He went through all those stages. So he completes the psalm with a doxology. An expression of praise, worship and honour to God, which reaffirms his trust and faith in God. Now, I know that there are folk here today who've been through great personal crisis and I do not seek to place my own experience above others. There are doubtless folk here who've been through great personal crisis and I don't know anything about it. All I can say personally is at a time when I was very sick, I had to face the question as to whether I would ever recover. The question as to whether I would ever earn a living again. Whether I could function as the father and the husband I had been. Whether I'd be fit enough to serve in the church. Indeed, whether I would have enough breath to sing. I'm sure there are Mixed views about the... (laughs) And and frankly, not all these questions are uh, are closed. But my testimony is that I recovered perspective when I said to God, okay, that's enough about me. Now let's talk about you. Okay? And just worshipped. That isn't only my testimony. Others I know can make that that testimony. Uh, The process in the psalm... Uh, 22 is special to me because I've sort of walked it, you see. But the process in the psalm is very interesting. If you check out the number of times the word I is used and the number of times the word you is used of God, okay, you see the change. You see the I's diminishing and the U's increasing. So finally, it's not about me, David. It's not about me, Steve. It's about you, God. Times of crisis can come to us Unintended and uninvited. When unintended and uninvited crisis comes, it is one of the subtlest tricks of the devil. I mean, really hyper mean and sneaky to suggest that it's in some way our fault, that we bear responsibility for it. And if we allow him at that stage, he will load us with guilt. Okay, so we will not just be dealing with whatever the crisis is, we'll be doing it with a, a great 40-pound weight of guilt <laughs> on our back. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible is very clear that when a crisis overtakes another Christian brother or sister, we may not construe it 
as some sort of retribution being extracted by God for sin. Okay, let me read an extract. Um, This is from a a secular book by a guy called uh, Nicholas Faith. It's called Black Box. And just to uh, lighten the tone, it's about air crashes. I remember listening to the cockpit voice recorder of a medium-sized passenger jet, a Boeing 737, which was coming into land in poor visibility in Africa. The co-pilot was telling the pilot all the way down that they weren't going to make it. And the captain was saying all the way down, oh no, it's all right, it's all right, I can make it. They touched down in front of loads of witnesses, I think well over halfway down the runway, and promptly ran off the end. The captain turned to the co-pilot and said, why did you let this happen to us? See, honesty compels us, my honesty compels me, to admit that whilst it should not be our practice to invite crisis, through our conduct, sometimes we do. God does not forsake us, nor will he forsake us. But there are those occasions we put ourselves in a place of pain because we did not listen to him. There are some crises, if you like, when we were the passenger. It was not our fault the plane ran off the end of the runway. We had no control over it. And there are others when we actually were in the pilot's seat and we weren't listening. Don't read that now, Rachel. Just stick to the Bible. Some crises, those which we must accept, have been driven in some measure by our own conduct could have been avoided. But standing in the debris field, having run off the end of the runway, we start to feel forsaken. We are not forsaken. (coughs) Jesus was forsaken so that we will not be. But we may yet bear some responsibility for the specific mess we're in. Had we listened to him, what do I mean by listening to him? Had we spent time in and gained understanding of the written word of God? Had we sought the counsel of wise and experienced fellow Christians and not ignored it? Had we spent time in prayer and worship? Had we measured our conduct against the words and character of Jesus Christ? We could have avoided some of them. It's certainly true of me. Okay, I put my hand up to this one. Incidentally, for you younger folk, um, watch out for this one. You can say, oh, I I sought the counsel of a wiser and older Christian. Uh, And they didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. So I sought the advice of another wiser and older Christian. And I kept going till I found one that told me what I wanted to hear. Okay, that is not what we mean by seeking the counsel of a wise and experienced Christian. And the other one is, well, okay, I I sought the counsel of a wise and experienced Christian. And what did he tell you? Well, he told me not to do it. So why did you do it? Oh, no, I sought his counsel. I didn't realise I had to abide by it. Surely that, no, no, surely not. We, uh, 
We've been talking this morning, and I, I jotted a couple of things down. Um, the phrase was lassoed to something that isn't Jesus. Um, and the other phrase that I picked up was that, quote, we have choices to make. And that's, that's, that's always true, isn't it? You know, uh, it starts with, do I get out of bed? And it gets worse as the day goes on, <laughs> you know. And I'm sure some of them are, do I strangle my children? Um, <laughs> do I yell at the wife? Do I get upset because the wife yelled at me? Uh, you know, do I throw the porridge across the kitchen? You know, there are all these things. And the answer is pretty, pretty automatic. But there are some things we need to be very clear of. And I have to say, the thing that always strikes me when I look at my life and have observed sometimes in others is a thing I call the law of unintended consequences. Okay. Um, what I mean to say is, had I known that this is where I was going to end up, I wouldn't have set off. Okay? Had I realized that all the way down the line, what I did then would cause this, I, I wouldn't have done it. Okay? And starting to understand that, well, it's called wisdom. Okay? It's called wisdom. And we need to seek the Lord because we lack it. Okay? Some of us lack it more than others, but we would all fail the wisdom exam. Yeah. All right? Uh, I, look at it, I look at it this way. Um, some of the things that have happened to my pension, okay, which I am working on not being bitter and twisted about, were to do with a decision over 10 years ago that the Chancellor took when he decided that he would no longer allow um, the tax breaks that companies that managed pensions were going to get. And here we are, 10 years on, okay, and my pension is nothing like as large as it was supposed to be. Uh, because the government basically has taken some of my money. I did warn you about the bitter and twisted. Uh, okay. Now, I, I actually don't think they would have done that 10 years ago if they'd known it was going to happen the way it is now. Apart from anything else, of course, it was their own pensions. Um, <laughs> so so I'm, cutting, I'm cutting them some slack. Okay? This is why we have to be, we have to be in the word of God. Okay? Sometimes the answer, well, it's, it's obvious. You know, the, the, the character and our understanding of Jesus and what we read in the word and the way that we have lived our lives, it makes it pretty obvious what we have to do. But other times, well, it, it's not, particularly, particularly those big decisions. Okay? Wisdom. Wisdom and understanding. Choices to make. Who or what are we going to lasso? Now, I, uh, I sought God uh, ab about what I was going to share uh, this morning. Um, now, I, I, have, I have a couple of words that I would like to bring, um, basically. Uh, there's at least someone here this morning. Um, and God is saying, look, if you're going to avoid a crash, you've got to listen to him. Yeah, or you're going off the end of the runway. Two areas came to mind. One was relationships, specifically uh, boy-girl relationships, 
And the other was the area of, of job and work. Um, now, I don't, I don't know who you are. Um, and you don't have to tell me who you are. That's fine. But for you especially, can I reiterate, you need to get into his word. You need to seek the advice of mature Christian brethren. You need to enter into private and corporate worship. You need to measure yourself against the words and character of Jesus Christ, not against anybody else. Uh, Secondly, um, I think God wants to speak to, again, I don't know who, on the issue of nursing their pain. Uh, At no point in what I've shared about Psalm 22 does it say that David stopped hurting. Okay? It doesn't say that. It says he recognized his pain and how he dealt with it. But it was real. Now the Lord says to whoever this is, with great tenderness, that it's time to stop nursing your pain. It's, it's time to stop being defined by it. And it's time to worship him. So I, I actually think this ties in so much with what Nigel uh, uh, brought earlier on. And so much with, with the way that our worship, uh, our worship has been. So uh, how do we deal with this? Well, actually, <laughs> these are things between you and the Lord. Okay, if you want some help, well, there's help available. Uh, But this is something you do. Um, I have met people over the years. Something awful has happened and they have been defined by it. They have nursed it. It has been something that instead of giving to God, they're almost comforted by it. They put their arms around it. They keep it warm. Sometimes they realize they're doing that and other times they are not. Okay, but here is God's word. It's time to lift up your head and it is time to worship. Okay? Now, we're going to break for coffee in a minute. Uh, if anyone wants to, to talk, uh, you know, to me or Nigel or, or Phil, obviously we'd be delighted to. Um, but I go back to my earlier comment. These are things that you need to deal with with God. If we can help or assist you, we will. But it's between you and him, principally. Okay?